As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Hello, this is Tim here, just to say that today's episode is going to be a little bit different as we're sharing a live episode of the podcast that we recorded for the Christian Medical Fellowship in New Zealand. CMFNZ are an association of Christian doctors who generously invited Dad and I to come and do our whole Matters of Life and Death shtick at their annual conference this month. We couldn't actually make it in person all the way to Auckland and Dunedin, sadly, so we recorded our chat in advance and sent it in by video. The doctors there had sent us two scenarios of bioethical conundrums for us to chew over. We hope you find it interesting. Thank you so much for inviting us to speak. Um, my name is Tim, uh, and this is my dad, John. Um, we're really privileged and pleased to be able to to speak to you guys. I'm sorry we couldn't be there in person. We're coming to you from the United Kingdom, where we live. Um, uh, what what we've been asked to do really is almost do a live version of our of our podcast, Matters of Life and Death, uh, which we record each week, uh, and it tackles uh, questions around medicine and healthcare and science, technology. Um, and ethics and faith and it really helps tries to help Christians think through how do we respond to some of the challenging ethical dilemmas that have been thrown up by advances in technology new new breakthroughs in, in science and medicine and how do we live faithfully and live well in this kind of confusing and accelerating world around us um, just a little bit to say about who I am um, so I, I, in my day job I'm a a freelance religion and social affairs journalist. Um, so I write a lot about what's going on inside the church, some other faith groups, but also about kind of social issues that are of interest to people of faith. So that might be around assisted dying or or, or um, uh, homelessness or divorce or or transgender issues. Um, and, and that's for a mixture of platforms. So I write uh, quite a bit for kind of Christian outlets, magazines. Um, I have another, a, a weekly Christian news podcast. Um, but I also write for for kind of mainstream secular outlets, newspapers and magazines on the whole, uh, both to try and kind of give an informed perspective on what's going on inside the church uh, and also to kind of do in the reverse, I suppose, be a bit of a bridge between those two worlds um, of journalism and the church, which often I think sometimes feel like they're slightly talking past each other. Um, Dad, who are you? Yeah, j- just to carry on, uh, on on that theme, um, I know that one of the issues that you're 
quite concerned about is, is the whole issue of religious literacy, isn't it? That uh, so often secular journalists don't seem to have a real understanding uh, of the kind of issues that Christians face. And therefore, when they write about issues within the Christian world, it's often a very confused and distorted perspective. And uh, and so that's something you've been concerned about recently, isn't it, about a, a Christian leader here in the UK? Yeah, that's right. Um, the kind of big issue at the moment where I'm, I'm kind of reporting on and, and thinking about is um, is sadly a, an abuse scandal or alleged abuse scandal, we should say, of a very high profile Christian uh, leader, a pastor called Mike Pilavachi, who has both founded a, a large kind of charismatic evangelical church, um, but also used to until a few years ago run a um, uh, a monthly, uh, a summer, uh, an annual kind of summer month um, fe- youth festival, Christian festival called Soul Survivor, which is the largest kind of youth ministry here in Britain and had kind of spread overseas. It might it might have even reached New Zealand, I'm not sure. Um, and and there's been some allegations around his behaviour with uh, some of his, his interns, um, which is, you know, a very serious and need to be properly investigated. Um, uh, but I think I, I've been doing some writing about some of the frustrations Christians have been feeling reading some of the, the stories from the mainstream press around the church and, and about evangelicalism more broadly and how there's a lot of lumped in with some very serious concerning specific allegations that are now being investigated. There has been a lot of kind of vague hand waving um, stuff, language about cults and about abusive teaching and and stuff, which is actually as Christians reading this are like, well, hang on, that's that's very standard teaching that you might hear from a pulpit. It's not abusive. It's not harmful. It's just orthodox or or, or saying actually, you know, describing Soul Survivor as a cult is just slotting this story into our kind of pre-existing frameworks and not really engaging with the messy reality of that church institution, which was not, not a cult. Um, so, yeah, I think it and I think I imagine anyone here who's listening who's had any interaction with them, kind of secular journalist might have had that that knot in their stomach about are they going to really understand me? Are they going to understand my faith, how that intersects with my work? Are they going to think I'm a lunatic or that it's irrelevant and not understand the kind of subtleties and nuances? And so, yeah, I think there is questions around religious literacy and part of I, I see my job um, is to try and be that bridge and to try and bring both kind of journalistic credibility and rigor to the church, but also have a as a kind of insider outsider perspective of the church to the to the media and try and inject a bit more nuance, a bit more subtlety, a bit more understanding of the context in which evangelical Christians kind of live out their lives. Yeah. Uh, so just talking about me, I'm uh, but my background is as a neonatologist. <clears throat> I I was a um, worked in a big level three. Uh, referral neonatal intensive care unit in central London um, and was particularly interested in uh, finding new treatments for brain injured babies or preventing brain injury. So I was one of the pioneers who worked um, with uh, the prevention of uh, damage using hypothermia for newborn babies. Interestingly, collaborating with colleagues, uh, Peter Gluckman and others in um, in New Zealand, um, but uh, increasingly, I've became interested in all the ethical challenges, um, particularly uh, related to uh, both uh, the traditional ethical issues like abortion and euthanasia, but also some of the new technological issues related with advancing technology. And then, more recently, I've been particularly interested in <clears throat> artificial intelligence and see this as the next big ethical challenge which is coming up on the horizon so 
Um, that's my, my basic background. I've retired from clinical practice a number of years ago. Um, we started this podcast um, about two years ago or so um, at the time of the pandemic, and it was a bit of an experiment. Um, but so much to our surprise, it's it's been rather more successful than we anticipated. And uh, about a year ago, we were adopted by uh, Premier Radio, a big Christian radio station in the UK. And um, we have a weekly podcast on their unbelievable brand. Um, and um, it's been fun. It's quite, uh, it's been an interesting process um, uh, working together, but uh, we've really enjoyed it. Yeah, we have. Um, and so, yeah, if you're interested in, if you enjoy our conversation, please do look up Matters of Life and Death on on whatever podcast platform app you're using. Um, uh, we're also, it's worth saying, before we start, we're going to be doing a, a live Zoom session with you all tomorrow morning. Um, so I'm sure, uh, and we're going to be answering some of the questions that are sent in via the Slido platform. Um, so I'm sure all the details about how to do that will be made available, whether you're in Dunedin or in Auckland. Um, and we're really looking forward to hopefully having a chance to chat to you guys live and and, and continue the conversation um, uh, onwards. Shall we um, talk about our first scenario? Yeah, let's go for it. So this is um, uh, something that was sent in by by a doctor from from CMFNZ, and 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 his question is is about really um, how do Christians navigate situations when providing a specific clinical care appears to be in conflict with what the Bible teaches us. Um, this doctor says that their particular challenging example is is providing fertility care to unmarried couples. Uh, in, in his practice, um, lots most if not many many of the people who have come to him are not married. Uh, and when he's treat, so he's asked when he, I'm treating infertile males, whether that's by surgery or medication or just advice on conception, who are not married but are trying to have a family with a female partner, am I doing wrong in God's eyes? Should I be refusing to treat them? Should I be sharing my convictions on sex and marriage, or should I just be tolerant and non-judgmental as one is expected to behave in a secular society? What's your thoughts on that, Dad? Yeah, and, and I think uh, most Christian doctors who work in a secular environment will recognise the kind of issues that is being raised here, that there's often seems to be some real tensions between what the secular healthcare system is uh, encouraging us to do and what, in our heart of hearts, we have real concerns about. And um, I think there are no easy answers, obviously, and it is interesting to me that different Christian doctors come to different positions on these kind of topics um but i find it very helpful just to go back to fundamentals and say uh, i find the the uh, images of salt and light that jesus uses in the gospels that we're called to be the salt of the earth the light of the world and salt is principally about pre preservative a role an act of, of reducing evil of minimizing harm of of within uh, society and then light is illuminating showing up a better way and in the context it seems that Jesus was particularly talking about our quotes good deeds it's about as we behave in a, a positive and a, a, a God-honoring uh, manner a manner which helps human flourishing that we're illuminating and transforming society so when we apply that to fertility medicine, I think you would say, yes, I need to try to minimize the harm that could be done by um, 
uh, marriages uh, by relationships which uh, break down. Um, so, is, is there a way that I can encourage uh, positive parenting practices? Um, obviously, I'm not going to be able to, in a secular society, you know, say, uh, "I'm sorry, I'm not going to treat you until you go away and get married." Uh, you know, if I was. <laughs> If I was to give that kind of advice um, here in the UK, you know, and, and there was a patient complaint, I would be in deep trouble and would be probably in danger of being struck off. So I've got to work within the system in which uh, I'm placed, uh, whilst at the same time having sort of red lines that I'm not going to go over. Um, so I think most Christian doctors would say in this kind of thing, well, I need to promote positive uh, attitudes towards child rearing. Um, I would, you know, raise the question about uh, what kind of uh, stability, security, um, what a child needs. Um, but I, I would have to work within the limitations of the system. Now, one of the interesting ideas, I think, is that when we work in a secular society, we've often got to adopt a mask of secular neutrality we've got to pretend as uh, that we don't care about things like marriage and about sexual fidelity and so on even though actually we do if we're going to work within this system which somehow we've got to adopt this mask but then i guess my immediate response to that was my question is is that can it be good for us to have to adopt this this kind of self-deception or this suppression of our genuine convictions about marriage, sex, or, or whatever it is. I mean, is it spiritually unhealthy for us to to have to kind of switch our faith off at the at the door of our office and then turn it back on again when we get back into the car to drive home? I mean, c- can we really be living in that kind of divided way without it kind of having lasting kind of negative consequences? Yeah, it's an interesting idea. So I, I would really push back against this idea of self-deception. It's not self-deception. I'm not deceiving myself at all. Um, I'm, I know perfectly well what I believe internally, and I know perfectly well what's acceptable in the secular world. There's no deception here. It's much more, I think of it, in terms of basically what Christians in, in a hostile and persecuted environment have always had to do. We've always had to adopt a mask uh, I remember years ago meeting a Christian uh, in the communist uh, Russia and he told me, you know what our vegetable is, doctor? As Christians, what our vegetable is? I said, no, I don't know what your vegetable is. It says it's the radish. That's what we have in in the communist countries. I said, why the radish? Well, because it's red on the outside, but it's completely white on the inside. <laughs> and that's how we have to live because we are living in a hostile environment. And if people really know we're Christians, we'll go out and we'll be taken out and shot. Hmm. So, I mean, you know, we're, thank God we're not quite at that level, but nonetheless, we have to adopt a mask. Uh, be, you know, and it's always been true, isn't it? I mean, you know, I'm trying to think what must it have been like if you were a Christian in Caesar's household in the early church? <laughs> you know, you didn't go around wearing a fish badge the whole time, I, I doubt. I think you were always constantly working out what you could say, you know, what you couldn't say, what you could get away with and so on. But there must be a line here because 
clearly, I imagine there are some things where the disparity between what the job requires of you and what you believe is is so great that you can't wear the mask and you have to say thus far and no further, you know, you know, for you, I guess it would be, you know, you worked in a hospital where obstetricians were doing abortions, but you weren't going to be involved with that because that kind of contradicted your values. But there are, you know, you'll be aware that you've met Christian doctors in other countries I'm thinking of where they've all kind of convinced themselves that that's kind of what our secular society wants us to do. And so we have to kind of just like, like it and lump it. Like, how do we draw the line between things which are absolutely no go and which are not my ideal, but I can make it work? Absolutely. And and I think these are uh, really challenging issues because you're absolutely right. We've got to have our red lines and we've got to say, at this point, I have to say no. And where does that red line come? Well, I think it comes from at the point at which by agreeing to do this practice, I am actually damaging myself as a person. I am, I am being forced to do something which is fundamentally damaging now, where that comes, I think it's going to be different for different people. So for me, I wrestled with this about abortion because, no, I wasn't actively doing the abortion, but I was working closely with the doctors who were doing the abortion, and I was counselling parents who were considering having an abortion. And uh, some of my colleagues felt that that was a step too far, that they should that you should say... I should have nothing to do with it. it. What's going on is abhorrent, particularly we're talking about very late abortions. These are abortions carried out at 28 weeks, 30 weeks, 32 weeks, you know, which is, which is legal in the UK for major malformations. And uh, I felt it was, although it, what was being proposed was abhorrent, actually I wasn't, by talking to these parents, I wasn't fundamentally doing something that was a... Uh, against my conscience. Um, but if I was being asked actually to be directly involved in the procedure, then I would say, I can't do that. That would be something that I would think was wrong. So, But I, th- I think everybody's going to have to find their own red lines. I mean, going back to fertility, one of the big issues is what about same-sex couples or even single people? I mean, it's a trend now for single people to have fertility treatment um, in order to have their ideal child, you know, where are the red lines uh, for doctors working in this kind of setup? Yeah, and I suppose uh, my immediate thought is about well, you talked about earlier at the start about trying to find, um, you know, the, the as good as possible, you know, trying to find some some common good practice, even if it's not ideal. And so that might look like, well, these parents aren't married, but at least we can try and encourage them to to understand about faithfulness and commitment and stability because that's the best environment to raise a child and I wonder maybe we apply the same lens to a same-sex couple and we might say sure we might have Christian convictions about um, uh, you know same-sex couples not being God's plan for for raising children or for you know being sexually active but actually maybe the, the best thing is to say what are the goods of Christian marriage about stability faithfulness commitment how can we share and introduce those to this this same sex couple? Yeah, I, I agree, uh, and and so it's trying to work out what we can say, which it, which is appropriate. Uh, I think it's also you know that one of the things that strikes me is that 
we need to creativity in terms of trying to find an alternative way forward. And so often we feel as Christians that we've we've confronted with two options, both of which is, which seem un, unhealthy and 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 less than ideal. And and the challenge is to say, can I think outside the box? Can I be more creative? Can I try and find something? which is genuinely, uh, which, which meets my Christian concerns, but which at the same time uh, is, is new and, and, and different. And, and I think that's so often where we need uh, the greatest um, creativity. Uh, and it's, some, it's a spiritual thing, isn't it? The Holy Spirit is a spirit of creativity. Hmm. And I guess the other uh, angle from that might be in the fertility example, you know, there's a lot of um, kind of pressure or, or indeed demand for people to go straight to the IVF option, which raises an, a whole number of ethical issues and we probably don't have time to go into. And maybe there's a space for Christian fertility doctors to be creative and imaginative and thoughtful to say, before we, we dive into the, the murky waters of IVF and have conversations about embryo selection and all that jazz, maybe Christians could say, are there alternatives are there um, other ways we could treat your fertility, which is a, you know, a real and, and meaningful, meaningful medical problem without immediately going to the kind of what the outside secular world sees as a kind of quick, easy technical solution, but we might think actually is a bit more complex. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that, that um, there is a, an approach to maximising natural fertility called NAPRO technology, which involves very, very close monitoring of a uh, the woman's monthly cycle and optimizing the possible chances of fertility. And uh, this has been pioneered by, really by Catholic doctors. And, and yet they claim to have almost as high a fertility rate in, uh, as with IVF. And, uh, and yet it's, it's surprised me that by and large, uh, Christian doctors haven't, haven't shown any interest in this kind of uh, approach um, and yet it seems to me such an obvious positive way forward of, of maximizing the, the the possibility of couples conceiving naturally rather than going immediately for very sophisticated reproductive technology mm -hmm. why is the, that the case do you think why why have why have evangelicals kind of missed missed out on this this opportunity here I think it isn't taught so so in uh, in general it, it's regarded as a you know, something that is is not respectable within mainstream fertility medicine. Therefore, it just isn't taught about. It's something I came across by accident. And I think that um, there is also huge commercial pressure. Uh, uh, sophisticated reproductive medicine is an extremely um, commercially successful branch of medicine. And... Um, Whereas, and also in terms of academic research and everything else, it's highly prestigious and so on. Whereas just encouraging people to have babies using minimal technology is seen as very low grade and academically uninteresting. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death. A podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Shall we move on to our, our second scenario, our second question? Sure. Yeah, we, we can put some links in uh, to different things we've talked about. And also, again, just to say that we're if people want to come back on using Slido, 
uh, we'd be very interested to discuss this in the live stream. Absolutely. Um, so the second uh, scenario also sent in by by a doctor from CMF New Zealand. Um, it's referring to, a, I think it's a, a real case that happened in, in, the, in the news recently. It's um, it, last year, in 2022, there was a baby who needed heart surgery quite urgently. Um, but the parents had controversial, to say the least, beliefs about the COVID-19 vaccine potentially remaining within the blood of blood donors and so insisted that they wouldn't accept any blood transfusion for their child, which came from a donor who was vaccinated. However, of course, there is no uh, separation between blood, do- which is donated by vaccine donors or not. Um, and so it was impossible for the medical team looking after the baby to accommodate this request. Ultimately, the case went to the High Court where guardianship of the child for medical matters was was taken and given to the state, who then gave consent on the child's behalf to proceed with the surgery and the transfusions as required. Um, so I guess this is all really about what how do we kind of thread the needle on knotty issues around consent when it comes to children and, and respecting parents kind of distinctive if controversial with the medical society kind of uh, opinions on on treatment yeah that's right and, and and this is a huge ethical conundrum so that the, the basic principles in certainly in uk law and i suspect in new zealand as well is that uh, adults are able to take decisions about their own care even if make decisions against medical advice they can do completely kooky things they can refuse life-sustaining treatment they can um, do many things which wouldn't be in their own best interests but the state will not force them to have medical treatment against their wishes Um, but when it comes to children um, the basic concept is that there is shared responsibility between the medical team and the parents and that they have to collaborate together to act in the best interest of the child. And so in these kind of situations where there's a, a sort of clear conflict between parents and uh, and doctors, um, it's often the only way that it can be resolved is by going to the law courts, <clears throat> and the law courts will decide, based on the best evidence, what's in the child's best interests. Um, and I, th- I think... Um, in, in this particular case, uh, there's no doubt that uh, if the parents couldn't be persuaded that this was the best outcome. Um, I think sometimes it's very difficult to know how, to what extent we should try to go with parents' wishes and respect parents' wishes. So I can remember a particular case where I um, did a great deal of agonizing about, and that was a, a baby I was caring for years ago, um, the parents were Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, the baby was uh, a very preterm baby on the neonatal unit, and uh, they made it very clear that they didn't want the baby to have any blood transfusions, and that they felt that if they, if we were to give blood transfusions to their baby, it was as though we were abusing the ch- the child, you know. Uh, but they also understood, b- because there'd been previous cases in the UK, they understood that. Uh, I, as the consultant, had the right to go to the courts and to argue that the baby should have a blood transfusion to save the baby's life and that the um, th- that they would have to agree. Um, but they then asked me, would I be prepared? They didn't want to go to court. They, they said that it was terrible publicity for Jehovah's Witnesses. It caused a great deal of stress. Uh, the last thing they wanted to do was go to court. But they asked me, would I agree to use new experimental treatment, which was intended to promote the production of the baby's own blood 
rather than having a blood transfusion um, and, and, and do everything possible to try and avoid giving a blood transfusion to the baby. So I had a lot of agonizing about this and did some research and talked to my colleagues and so on. But in the end, I agreed with them. I said we would use this new experimental treatment, which was erythropoietin at the time. That wasn't it wasn't licensed for use in the newborn. And I also agreed that I would allow the baby to become more anemic. Our standard practice was to allow the hemoglobin to drop. Once the hemoglobin got below 12, we would routinely transfuse the baby. And I also agreed that in this particular case, uh, because that the parents, provided they understood with the risks, I would allow the baby to go become more anemic than normal to see whether this new experimental treatment would could mean that the baby would avoid having a blood transfusion. Um, yeah, so and that caused a certain amount of, of discussion and debate. And some of my colleagues uh, disagreed very strongly with me. They said, look, we should treat every baby exactly the same, whatever kooky beliefs their parents have. Whereas I felt actually this is all about a collaboration, seeing the baby in the context of the family, and therefore we should try and treat the baby. Even if that meant I was in some way exposing this baby to more risk than to other babies. And that just does seem to me, as particularly as a as a non-medic, like quite remarkable that you were prepared to effectively, you know, this child has had no choice over what family it's brought into and the the decidedly unevidenced beliefs of its uh, of its parents and yet you were prepared to let it potentially um uh yeah suffer as a result so that you could kind of allay the the conscience and the feelings of, of its parents did, did did that was that because you're a christian you kind of respect unusual values or, or was that actually the medically right thing to do do you believe well i think i mean i think probably being a Christian and, and, and have, you know, I talked previously about expert expert relationships that I was supposed to be the medical expert, but parents were experts in their life and their beliefs and their history and their worldview and their family and all the rest. And in a way I was trying to put into practice this idea of treating parents as experts. Um, but it was also, you know, I remember I talked to them and I said, well, how would you feel if I went ahead and got to the courts and I gave a blood transfusion to the baby? How would, how would that change your view of the baby? And they said, well, we would just regard our baby as, as someone who'd been terribly abused. You know, it would be similar to, you know, a child who'd been sexually abused or someone like that. And so I thought that was really great, you know. I thought I was here trying to make babies better and, you know, now I've become some terrible abuser who is you know um and so i so therefore in other words yes from a f medical point of view it might be the ideal thing to do the blood transfusion but the consequences for the whole family dynamics how is this child going to grow up knowing it was, it was abused as a baby knowing mm -hmm. that you know is it going to be ostracized by other people within the Jehovah's Witness community who believe very strongly about blood and all the rest, you know. So, so it's in other words, it's interesting. The courts say that yes, we've got to do what's in the best interest of the child, but best interest is bigger than just medical best interest. It isn't just necessarily the medical decision. It's the whole. You've got to see the whole context to work out what's best for the child. And I find this question of best interest and the kind of legal test really fascinating because. 
you know, it makes sense to me that, you know, when, when a child is not able to consent to their own treatment, then, then the, the, you know, the state, as it were, in the place of the, of the doctors has a kind of, um, we don't just give complete autonomy to the parents to do whatever they want. We say, actually, it's not in the child's best interest to, to die, to, to uphold the parents' beliefs about blood transfusions, if, if, if it came to that. But then if the child, when if that was true of a 17-year-old or whatever, but if the child turns 18 and becomes an adult, suddenly we're like, okay, that's fine. It is not, it is, it is better that you die for lack of a blood transfusion than that, that, that we temporarily kind of override your autonomy and give you a blood transfusion that you didn't want. You know, uh, re- remaining true to your beliefs is, is of more value to an 18-year-old than life itself. But when you're a child, we flip on, on the other way around. Does that seem incongruous to you? Well... You know, we've got to draw the line somewhere, but it, but in essence, that is the case, isn't it? I mean, for instance, you know, I'm not sure what it is. It's it's probably either 17 or 18 before you can join the armed forces uh, in the UK. And if that means if you're 18 years and one day, yes, you can go out and you might get shot up and, and die trying to save your country. But if you're 17 years and 11 months, we say, no, you haven't got enough maturity to make that decision. There have to be lines somewhere. Um, and and for good or ill, that that's the line. I think what is more problematic is where we, for instance, we don't force children to have immunizations, at least not in the UK. Um, even though all the medical evidence is strongly in its favour, we try and persuade uh, parents uh, about many good things for children, but for we've still respect the rights of parents. Similarly, we don't force state education on every child um, and say it's compulsory. We allow parents to make other educational choices. We, we say you've got to have some education. But so, I and I respect that. I think that that is taking parental responsibility seriously. I mean, just going back to my case, I want to clarify <laughs> before, before the... the uh, the complaints flood in. <laughs> I want to clarify. One, I told the parents that we would monitor the baby very closely. And as soon as there were any physiological signs of uh, anemia, of deficiency, uh, I was going to, I felt I was forced to give a transfusion um, in order to save the baby's life or for the save from injury. Um, and, and so, um, and just to tell the story, what actually happened was we watched the haemoglobin, we watched the baby very closely. Sure enough, it it went below 12, and then it went below 11, then it went below 10. And yet when I examined this baby really carefully, the, ba- the baby was fine, was doing fine, was growing, no problems. Uh, the haemoglobin went down to nine, uh, and then it started to, to c- creep up 9.5, 9.6, when it started going to 10 without any any blood transfusion at all at which stage the baby was doing so well the baby then got transferred back to the referral hospital when the baby got to the referral hospital the doctor said good grief the hemoglobin is 10 we've got to give her blood transfusion <laughs> so sadly sadly they gave a blood transfusion because that was what the book says the book says hemoglobin less than 12 you have a blood transfusion so um but in other words I do think there is a place for creativity. There is a place for trying to uh, find, individualize our care, trying to respect uh, parents' best interests, whilst at the same time making sure that that we are doing the right, the best thing 
we possibly can for the child. Reading this scenario, I think it's, I imagine both, most people listening think it was quite kind of an easy call, as it were, for the court to to temporarily take guardianship of the child, give consent for a, a blood transfusion uh, to save the child's life. Because we know that, you know, the conspiracy theories and misinformation about COVID vaccines are nonsense and that there is no vaccine left in the blood and the vaccines cause no harm. Um, there's been a lot of cases of this ilk um, in the UK recently, which have actually attracted Christian interest, mostly around um, babies or children who are um, the doctors are seeking to remove life sustaining treatment because they believe it's futile and hopeless. And it's in the best interest of the child to be allowed to die a natural death. And their Christian parents have kind of lawyered up and, and there's, a, there's a large kind of well-funded Christian legal advocacy group which kind of campaigns and goes to court to fight to stop the doctors from from removing treatment and again they typically lose and 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 the doctors are allowed to to let the child die um but it's kind of um kind of activated a christian kind of community which thinks that you know we are having our rights removed do you think that these kind of legal procedures do give due weight to kind of controversial beliefs which you know there might be the covid vaccine today but in 10 20 30 years time maybe kind of orthodox evangelical convictions around uh, various things about medicine will be seen as so strange and kooky that we might be the ones defending them in court against doctors yeah i i think it's a really good point incidentally we did an episode didn't we on the the, the particular case of archie battersby as uh, mm. Some months ago, if people are interested in that, uh, in a previous episode of our matters, this is one of the the he was an eleven year old who was um, kind of in a uh, on life support, and and um, the doctors wanted to to take him off life support and let him die, and his kind of Christian parents fought long and hard to try and unsuccessfully try and prevent that from happening. I, I think these are very very complex and difficult issues, aren't they? So so sometimes Christian uh, legal groups have fought for the right of conscience, for the right of um, Christians in, in many professions in, in a way which is, I see, very positive and something that I would be very strongly supportive of, trying to protect conscience rights, trying to protect uh, the rights of people, for instance, to wear a cross in another spirit, uh, religious symbols. But unfortunately, when it comes to medical law, it's often that the, the subtleties, the complexities, the nuances are lost and you get this kind of culture war perspective, which particularly comes from the States and which which is deeply distrustful of all uh, institutional uh, experts. You know, it's all the deep state. It's all, you know, they've all got a, a hidden agenda and and it paints the sort of the the little man who is trying to fight the system and standing up for individual freedom and individual rights and so on. And it's a very, very polarized black and white perspective. And my experience is, you know, as having worked often as a medical legal expert witness in these kind of issues, I know that actually the judges, most of the judges we have in the UK are pretty impressive. They, they're desperately trying to do the right thing. They, they haven't got some huge... Uh, prior um, commitment or corruption uh, but under very very difficult circumstances they're trying to balance different uh, commitments and responsibilities and I think we have a role as Christians to try to uh, 
promote the common good. We're, we're not here to, um, to act to maximize polarization. We're here to promote the common good, but there is a time to say we have to stand up and fight for our rights as a minority. We are a religious minority, but we are protected under you know universal human rights codes and so on. And we have the right to practice our religion and to have freedom of, of conscience uh, uh, and, and religious belief. Mm. And obviously, I'm not familiar with the kind of New Zealand legal system, but I reading some of the court judgments around these cases, particularly the Archie Battersby case, I was quite struck actually by the seriousness by which the legal professionals and the system took his parents' objections and concerns, and that there was, you know, many, many, many months of painstakingly working through some of these issues, explaining why the doctors had come to the conclusions they had, getting second opinions, you know, going in depth and trying to understand what are your values as a family? Why are you as Christians opposed to the withdrawal of life treat sustaining treatment? And so there, there wasn't a sense in which these were tiny Christians being kind of steamrolled by an uncaring atheistic state, but actually there was deep respect for their beliefs, even if ultimately the doctor said applying the test of best interests, you know, we don't believe it would be in Archie's best interest, even as a Christian, um, to 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 kind of continue fighting when it's hopeless, when his you know his brainstem was disintegrating and then all that stuff. So, yeah, I was quite reassured, as it were, saying that you know under the system that we have at present, I feel confident that even as our societies kind of do drift away from that Christendom idea and and we our beliefs do become ever more of a minority that there is still kind of protection for conscience and we're taken seriously at least. Yeah, but I think we need to carry on. We need to inform ourselves about what the law says. We need to be able to argue positively um, for our own uh, protection uh, and and our ability to continue to practice uh, according to our beliefs and to argue that actually it's for the good of society. It's not just for the good of us. It's not just something that we are a sort of small interest group protecting our own back. Actually, this is for the common good. If all minorities are able to uh, be respected and treated um, with courtesy, to be listened to, uh, whilst we recognise that some very hard decisions have to be made uh, ultimately by legal authorities. Hmm. Brilliant. All right. Well, that's kind of our time running out. Um, so let's should we draw our conversation to a close there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, just a quick reminder as well, we're, um, we're going to be doing a live Zoom session tomorrow morning, picking up on some of these ideas and answering some of your questions. So if anything that we've said, if you passionately disagree with what we've said, um, or, or you want to kind of ask a further question or take the discussion further, please do um, send in your thoughts via the Slido platform. Um, the details I'm sure we made available somehow. And we really look forward to Uh, seeing some of you tomorrow uh, live on Zoom. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Unbelievable.